Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're bringing you some listener mail today. Now, we just did an episode of uh, Halloween-related listener mail, stuff for our October episodes on all things monstrous. But there was a ton of great listener mail that I would say fell in the crack, maybe between the coffin and the hard place, got wedged in there, and it's it's too good to pass by, so we're bringing you a second helping. Uh, this is going to be listener mail. A lot of it, I think, was from September, some from more recently, uh, so we hope you enjoy. That's right. There's a lot of great stuff in here, and we, we wanted to, to do right. We wanted to pay off our debts here, listener mail uh, related, before we move on into some more exciting content that will take us through the holidays and ultimately uh, into a new decade. Now, as always, Carney, our mailbot, is here to help us. Uh, I was telling Carney about my own uh, 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 philosophy regarding the uh, the holidays moving forward, and that I'm going to lean into the holidays. Mm-hmm. I'm going to embrace the holidays, uh, and uh, and so uh, Carney's doing the same thing. He's cooking nonstop, though. Uh, he is uh, he's, he's, he's researching recipes uh, for Thanksgiving dishes, and he is attempting to replicate food that humans can safely eat. He just presented me a dish of delicious braised Pop-Tarts that I can't wait to tuck into. <laughs> it is technically food. You cannot deny it. <laughs> All right. Should we look at this first piece of mail? This comes from our listener, Jordan, regarding the interview you did with Mark Mandika about, uh, among many things, copperheads, snapping turtles, and all that. That's right. Uh, you were traveling, uh, so I had Mark come into the studio when we chatted, and yeah, this is what Jordan had to say. Quote, I was recently listening to your September interview with Mark Mandinka on animal conservation and vilified reptiles and thought I would share my personal experience being bitten by a copperhead snake. Hmm. This being said, I have always loved snakes, and the experience has not left me with any hatred of the reptiles or species themselves. That's very big of you, Jordan. Five years ago, I was bitten on the foot by a baby copperhead snake in North Carolina. As you may know, baby venomous snakes are often considered more dangerous due to their lack of venom output control. I wasn't aware of the snake's presence at the time, and the bite marks were discovered by the ER, but the pain felt similar to that of an insect sting. Following the bite itself, my vision nearly immediately went yellow as I temporarily lost the ability to see other colors. About 10 seconds after, my muscles collapsed to the forest floor and uh, and I had to drag myself out of the woods to a nearby park bench as I was too weak to stand. I didn't end up needing anti-venom, but I was connected to three IV machines and kept in the hospital overnight as my foot was extremely swollen and blue in color. I was confined to a wheelchair and crutches for multiple months after with my swollen foot, so I, I definitely felt side effects of the copperhead venoms. Mild or not in comparison to other venoms, I would not uh, wish to relieve the experience, although it is a much better story than any encounter I've had with a scug. <laughs> I love stuff to blow your mind and invention, and I hope you enjoyed hearing what happened to someone uh, that was actually bitten by a copperhead snake. That's a great story, Jordan. I don't know if I'd ever heard about the vision going yellow before. That's a very interesting effect. Right. Likewise, I either didn't know or had forgotten uh, about the, the young snakes and venom control, mm-hmm. uh, venom output control. That's that's interesting as well. And, uh, yeah, it's just nice to have a firsthand account of the power of, uh, of a snake's venom. I've, I have never been bitten by a snake, so I can't, uh, can't relate. I, I've been stung by wasps, but that's, uh, that's it. Woo! All right. Next, we've got a couple of emails going way back to our uh, episodes about fatbergs, of course, the the dragons, the soap dragons that grow in our sewers when we flush wet wipes like we shouldn't. Don't wash oil and grease down the sink. Don't flush wet wipes, folks. Uh, And this comes from an anonymous listener, one who wished to remain anonymous. Uh, they say, hi, Robert and Joe, and good stuff to blow your mind, people. So I guess that, that concerns you too, Seth. First off, you guys are truly of the finest podcasters, communicators, progressive thinkers, bastions of curiosity that I've encountered in podcast land. Thank you sincerely for your podcast and other endeavors. Well, you're far too kind. 
Uh, now, I present to you a real-life Fatberg superhero. We were asking about this in our Fatberg episodes. I, I think the idea we came up with, though, was Fatberg Cop, right? Yes. Uh, but the, the listener here says, uh, it is the now-retired Grease Avenger from the city of Los Angeles Bureau of Sanitation. The Grease Avenger was created by uh, someone named Adel Hujakalil to promote awareness of the problems resulting in sewers from FOG, or fog, fats, oil, and grease. This, at the time, division manager would dress up in his super suit and appear at functions to promote the messaging. Now that Mr. Haji Khalil has progressed in his career to manage a different bureau, the Grease Avenger has been retired, and almost all links to the story and images have been plucked from the web. A little nugget of Fatberg gold remains, however. See the screenshot and the link below. This is the only remaining image I could find of Mr. Haji Khalil in his super suit. The story unfolds below in this obscure University of Houston publication. You'll see why when you read the story. Although his superhero days are likely entirely behind him, Adel remains a much beloved and uh, effective visionary leader and is now general manager of the city of Los Angeles Bureau of Street Services. Although sewers and subterranean systems rarely hold the attention of the public, those of us who design and construct and maintain and operate this infrastructure know that we keep the poo beast at bay. <laughs> all, uh, all you need to remember, my friends, is that the sun shall rise tomorrow, thanks in part to people like Adel Hajikhalil. I'm so glad we've come back to this, uh, this, this particular email because I was delighted that there was a, a, a real-life Fatberg cop. But can you believe it? There's more. In my early days as a newly minted civil engineer in British Columbia, I needed to install flow gauges in the sewers of a remote coastal community. Accurately gauging sewer flows is not trivial. It's fraught with all the perils you can imagine, plus complications that can arise from hydraulics and dynamic conditions. Anyway, to install the most accurate type of flow gauge, which is a metal band with a sensor at the bottom of it, one must physically install the band inside the sewer pipe. You must go down a manhole or maintenance hole, to use the more inclusive term, and reach into the sewer pipe by hand, uh, often while it's flowing, <laughs> and install. We popped a maintenance hole cover to begin installation only to find that the walls and everything inside were coated in an inch or so thick layer of white, softish, greasy goo. The diet of this remote community you see features a delicacy, ulican grease. Uh, for the referenced website, quote, beginning around the end of February, they started to fish vast quantities of ulican, a small and very oily member of the smelt family. Ulican was not usually eaten as a fish meat. The vast majority of the catch was rendered for its edible grease, which could be stored for many months. They boiled the ulican, uh, and I, that's O-O-L-I-C-H-A-N, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, in large cedar-bent boxes until the grease separated and rose to the top. They then skimmed the grease and poured it into other boxes to store it for trade with other tribes or eating throughout the year. The grease is prominent in all aspects of life in the local indigenous culture, so it was not surprising to see it represented with such gusto in the sewers, which quite literally link the entire community. We couldn't safely climb inside with all that grease, so we got fire hoses and nozzles and other various implementia to clean out the manholes and pipes sufficiently to let us do our work. Not wanting to ruin our boots and clothing and generally stay as poo-free as possible, we donned rain gear, heavy gloves, and bags that we duct tape liberally to to, you guessed it, a super suit. Yeah. The only record that remains is a coffee mug that my workmates uh, at the time had made for me from a project photo that my colleague took. See attached. I never thought this photo might one day be relevant or shareable in any way. I present my elevated persona, Sewer Man. Remember, flush not thine wipes of wetness, for nothing good therefrom shall come. Oh, wow. That, that, was, that was a great listener email that just got better and better. Yeah. <laughs> It had everything. It had a real – it had a Fatberg cop from the real world. Mm -hmm. It had a battle with a unique type of sewer grease. I mean, right. this is great. We learned a little bit about other cultures. Yeah, it's pretty great. All in all. And it's not the only bit of Fatberg uh, listener mail that we have to read for you. <laughs> this next one comes to us from Maurice titled Fatbergs from Outer Space. Uh, they write, I'm a longtime fan of Stuff to Blow Your Mind and listen to the show not just to learn about weird and noteworthy things, but also to gain inspiration for my own creative efforts. I write horror, science fiction, and fantasy stories, but I also write my own modules for the RPG games I run. 
After listening to the recent Fatberg episode, I became disgustingly fascinated and knew I had to design a grossed-out module for my Starfinder game, a science fantasy game by uh, Piazzo, I believe it is. Uh, uh, this is the, the company that makes Pathfinder. It's my understanding that Starfinder is like the sci-fi um, the sci-fi sub-brand or, or, you know, parallel brand I, I to Pathfinder. I don't know a thing about it. Pathfinder, no. more traditional, like, D&D style. Okay. Um, and there's a more complicated history there as well. But anyway, that's what they're talking about here. Uh, anyway, talking about setting this up as a side mission. Quote, the setup is on a space station, which uses magic to run much of its life support in conjunction with more science-based methods. A fatberg has been generated on board in the water system, uh, bordering too close to the magical subsystems and has gained a kind of sentience. And the players have to find a way to defeat it and its minions before it threatens the station on the whole. Our quest against the fatberg starts tonight. <laughs> I really can't thank you enough for this thoroughly nauseating but immensely interesting topic. As a thank you, I've included a few stat blocks for this module, uh, which I have custom uh, created and included here, complete with ecology and tactical notes. Sorry for the formatting. I use several platforms to create content, and sometimes I have to use lower quality JPEGs for output. Keep the great content coming, Maurice. Now, uh, I don't know anything about stat sheets or, or designing monsters, but uh, Robert, if if you have any thoughts. Oh, no, it looked pretty good. I, you know me, I can't resist looking at a um, it's stats for monsters, and yeah, this this looks like a, a really fun, uh, fun encounter. Uh, I also like the idea of the magic and the science uh, being uh, mingled together on the spaceship. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I've encountered that before, but it makes sense, right? If you're going to power a starship, you don't want to depend exclusively on magic. You need to have uh, at least a science uh, backup in place. Right. I would guess that uh, magic is more fickle and fleeting and finicky, and, and you got to have something, uh, a reliable generator running in the background. Right. And then, uh, you know, science can only do so much. Something's got to make the, uh, the artificial gravity work. So might as well turn to pure magic for that. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. All right, we're back. All right, so uh, we did an episode a while back about school dreams, the dreams where people are returned to high school or college, uh, and we, we addressed why these dreams are so common, why they so often invoke anxiety, why they're so common in people who have been out of school for many years. And uh, quite a few listeners got in touch about these. I would say this is this is one of the most email-generating episodes we've done in a while. Yeah, and, and certainly we're not going to read them all on the show. But I will say that just the sheer volume of emails did speak to the, the, the near-universal aspects of this sort of dream. Mm -hmm. Though a couple of people let us know that they didn't have school mm -hmm. dreams. Uh, they usually had some kind of equivalent that was based on some other part of their lives. A lot of people got in touch answering Robert's question about, uh, whether people who were in the military had military yep. dreams, uh, and and quite a few people did. You know, they would have dreams of, uh, I don't, you know, uh, not being able to like get their uniform right or not being able to figure out where they're supposed to go and things yeah. like that. Uh, so to read a couple of the ones we got in response to the school dreams episode, this first one comes from Brendan. Brendan says, hey, guys, I'm an avid listener of the show and often feel compelled to write in. But by the time I'm around my computer, the desire has been absorbed by the day-to-day -day duties of my life. However, this time I happen to be in front of my computer as I finished one of your recent episodes on school dreams. Uh, I cannot recall ever having dreams of either high school or college, though I attended both. However, I went to community college later in my 20s and placed little personal value on my high school experience. I went directly into the workforce from high school waiting tables, and later tending bar. I do somewhat regularly have dreams of showing up late for shifts and not wearing clothes in the restaurant, etc. In spite of having transitioned out of this type of work some years ago, I'm now an arborist. I have a hard time imagining two more divergent careers. I think it was Joe who questioned why school would be the metaphor a brain might select for dealing with present personal problems. Remember, this is following up from... Uh, a number of people commenting on this phenomenon uh, who said that they thought that school dreams were really about whatever present challenges people were facing and that maybe the brain just selected school as a kind of template or metaphor for working out those problems in the dream. Uh, Brendan continues, 
I think that the reminiscence bump provides a possible answer couched in one of the other statements you made, that the period of life in which your so-called teenage brain is making vivid memories that uh, help one to identify with self, you're also creating an extremely personalized metaphor that could be adaptable in motivating action when one is faced with a problem that has no clear solution. By providing a feeling of reconnection to the basic self lost to time, similar to how people have used uh, tarot, astrology, and other randomly accessed organized stimuli to give their life direction, school just happens to be a near-universal experience for people of that age in modern culture and often referred to uh, as where we, quote, figure out who we are. I think I would be most interested in hearing data and accounts of hunter-gatherer, early pastoral, or other non-industrial cultures and their school dream equivalents. Anyways, I hope this wasn't too long-winded and helps shed some light on the experience of those who didn't attend college at that formative period of life. Thank you also for indulging my armchair philosophical hypothesis. I love the show and the sounds of your voices. Have a great day, and I look forward to hearing your next topic. Well, thanks a lot, Brendan. Yeah, that was was some interesting insight into the topic for sure. I totally echo. I mean, if if you're like a dream researcher out there, I I would like to see if uh, people who don't really have anything equivalent to like the standard, you know, United States kind of school experience, if people in in hunter-gatherer societies or something report different patterns of dreams that are in any way analogous to school dreams. Yeah, that would would be something interesting to cover. All right, here's another dream email. This one comes to us from Sammy. Hey, guys, just started listening to the episode called School Dreams, and wow, did I relate to this. One of my only nightmares is forgetting I had a class and realizing it at the end of the semester. I know this isn't school-related, but my most common nightmare is actually being a waitress and forgetting one of my tables. I was a waitress about seven years ago for two years. Those have to be related, right? I'd be curious to know if you guys have these kinds of dreams about your jobs. All the best, Sammy. P.S. from follow-up email. Sorry, I kept listening and realized I should give you some uh, some context on my education. <laughs> I went straight from high school to university for an engineering degree, uh, where during my second and third year, I was a waitress. All of my school nightmares were forgetting university classes, but not high school. Honestly, I think this is probably because up until university, I had no difficulty in school, but engineering was quite hard. Thanks. Well, let's see. Um, well, that first question about uh, dreams about jobs and job stress, I, I used to. Uh, so I worked in newspapers for a while before I um, ended up uh, working for uh, How Stuff Works and uh, getting into podcasting and so forth. And I would do uh, – I, I would increasingly just do pagination. So like laying out pages of, of the newspaper mm-hmm. in a program like InDesign. You're the kerning master. Yeah, yeah, all, all that fun stuff. I mean and it was it – was, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, but it was also – it was also stressful because you had to get everything to a, to a fine uh, point or as fine a point as possible, having to edit the content, edit the, the headlines, and then it goes to the press and then that's it, you know, and, mm. and you just hope that you got everything. And so I would – for years after I had uh, left that, that job and that profession, I would still have dreams in which – I I was concerned about the layout of the front page of the newspaper and then somehow the the bed that I was sleeping in was the front page of the newspaper and the pillows were different modules on the front page like you know a, a headline or a text box or an image box or a caption uh, or an illustrative piece and uh, I had to be careful not to move because if I physically moved my body I might disrupt uh, the various elements of the front page of the newspaper that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Finally went away, thankfully. I also – I have school dreams a lot, but I also have job dreams all the time. Uh, and they – I've had job dreams about uh, like when I was wor- – you know, I, I've worked in restaurants and grocery stores and stuff. I had server dreams, like mm-hmm. lots of stuff about like forgetting about tables and stuff. It's actually somewhat equivalent to the school dreams, like a, a big table that I forgot I had and I'd been neglecting them all night and now mm-hmm. they're mad and that kind of thing. I'd have dreams about – uh, you know, like losing track of of uh, dairy products. <laughs> 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 when I worked in a grocery store, I, I was uh, 
one of the main things I had to do was like keep stock of the dairy aisle and move stuff up from the the cooler in the back out to the shelves and stuff like that. And mm. so it involved a lot of management of inventory by date. And so I'd have dreams where like I couldn't read the dates and couldn't understand uh, you know uh, what needed to be out there, and then I'd lose things, and it, you know everything always had to be kept cold. So anyway, that's probably very boring. Sorry, but uh, this is interesting too because this touches on something that we I think discussed recently on the show, and that's the mm-hmm. uh, reading and dreams. Yeah. Uh, so and you were having the experience where you're just having a lot of trouble reading these numbers, but not to the point where you're like, oh, I must be in a dream no, because uh, I can't read. I don't think the problem was that I couldn't read. It was more like there's a lot of the dream had a – I remember not being able to keep track of information. Ah, uh, OK. Dream. Well, that, that also lines up with it right there. Yeah. Like the, the analytical brain is not uh, fully engaged enough to, to, to really keep track of things or to question the authenticity. Yeah, I think uh, working memory and critical reasoning are somewhat limited in mm-hmm. the dream world. But also I have tons of, of anxiety dreams about like the kind of job I have now. Again, not very hard to figure out what they might be. It's like – uh, I dream that I released a podcast on a subject only to find out after we already published it that everything I said was grossly inaccurate and uh, and people are like, how could you get all this stuff wrong? And I'm like, oh, no. And, yeah. It's weird because I have those same – some of those same waking anxieties, you know, and I have the, some of the same job stresses that you do because mm-hmm. we pretty, you know, pretty much have the same job. And yet I never have dreams about them. Huh. I never do. I Instead, I have the school dream. That's funny. Well, I I will say I have the school dream way more than I have job dreams, like way more than I have dreams about the current job I have. I think the way I'd put it is I have had job dreams like that. I still have the school dream on a regular basis. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That that lines up with with me. Like I had the job dreams for a while. Uh, they, They outlasted the job, but then they went away. All right, so I want to read one, maybe two of the the emails concerning, you know, the school dreams about the military or from people who served in the military. Uh, This one comes to us from Dan. Dan writes, I joined the Army one week after graduating high school. I didn't take school seriously and do not recall any school-related dreams today. However, after serving in the Persian Gulf War, my dreams were consumed with a persistent vision. In this dream, I repeatedly had, I was disposing of an anonymous human being wrapped in a rug, tossed into a dumpster. Oh, horrible. The dream was so real, I began to question its authenticity. Was it part of my reality? I reeled for months of about it. As time passed, so did the dream. I used my GI Bill to attend college in upstate New York. Along the way, my dreams began to stress and fret about school and classes I'd forgotten to attend. This dream also became uh, so visceral that I began to check my schedule to ensure my reality was not what my dreams would have me believe. Love the episode. Love what you guys do. Keep up the great work. Dan. Okay, so this is multiple interesting permutations. So mm-hmm. saying no dreams about school when he was in school and then was in the military and, and served in combat uh, and had persistent dreams, but maybe not necessarily directly about the military, but so much like a, I don't know, some kind of related persistent nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, not to serve as dream interpreter here, but it definitely seems tied to the like the stress of dealing, uh, you know, with life in a, in a combat zone. Yeah. Um, now, of course, the thing about not having dreams about high school, that lines up with a lot of, I think, a lot of what people have said, you know, yeah. where it's definitely that post-high school period of life that, uh, that that dictates the dream content. Well, yeah, that, that seems like one of the main variants, like either it's mostly college or mostly high school or whatever else you were doing at that time or some other uh, some other thing, other part of the life that people view. Uh, we did hear from a lot of people saying it was like these self-defining years that really seemed to uh, uh, to form their persistent like frustration, anxiety, or problem-solving dreams. Uh, we asked specifically at one point about homeschooling, I think. Yeah, and we heard from several people mm-hmm. who were homeschooled who did have related dreams. Right. Uh, but here's one from Heather, who also served uh, in the military. So we get it like a double in this one. Woo! Heather writes, I have had dreams about elementary school mostly, and I am usually late or still in PJs and everyone is mocking me. I was homeschooled in middle school, and I never dream about that. I never dream of public high school or college either. 
Uh, I was also in the military, and while I was in, I did have dreams about bad things happening to me in the military, like showing up for a formation naked and somehow not noticing until I got there and getting in trouble for making mistakes. While I was in Iraq, I dreamed so convincingly that I was in Germany that I still thought I was in Germany when I woke up. It uh, took me and my best friend a couple of minutes to get back to reality and realize that we were, in fact, in a crappy metal box trailer in the desert for another 12 months. Talk about a freight train of disappointment. I don't really dream about any of that stuff in my 30s, though. Heather. Uh, so extinction of the dream obsession now. Right. And elementary school uh, stress dreams instead. Weird. Sorry, I didn't mean to call you weird, Heather. I just mean uh, the variety is interesting. Now, on the pajamas in elementary school, I do I have an elementary like age memory. This wasn't going to school, mm-hmm. but I instead of putting my taking my pajama pants off and putting pants on over them, I just put my blue jeans over my pajama pants mm-hmm. and went on with my day and then later discovered when I went to the restroom that I still had my pajamas on under my clothes. <laughs> and that was that was a real-life occurrence that kind of nicely mimics, like, the fears we have regarding, um, uh, you know, the kind of stress dreams that we have where we're, like, you know, wearing our pajamas to school, uh, wearing them out in the day. Uh, you know. Wait, were there any bad consequences to that? Well, no, no, luckily not, but it's kind of – you know, it's like the adult version of realizing that you just uh, drove for four hours uh, you know, there and back home and didn't have your driver's license. You're like, oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Like that nothing went wrong. But what if it did? What if someone had noticed that I was wearing my pajamas all day underneath my pants as if this was just what I did? That's a good comparison. All right. I think we're going to call the school dreams there. Sorry to the many, many of you who uh, also got in touch with us with your great emails. We really appreciate them. Uh, but we got to go on to to get some uh, feedback about other episodes. That's right. We can't just talk about dreams. We also have to talk about black holes. That's right. So regarding our uh, episodes about Sagittarius A star, the, the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, uh, first of all, several listeners got in touch to ask us about the source of the opening monologue in that episode. I guess we didn't make it clear. They were asking if it was coming from a book or something. Uh, no, that was just us. That was just uh, original to the show. Yeah, if, if, we, if we're not sourcing it or citing it, then it's probably just something we made up. Well, uh, uh, yes, that is generally the rule. We may have forgotten. To or do we so forgot. It's okay. unintentional. If yeah. We, yeah. Uh, but yeah, since you asked, uh, yeah, that's just us. So uh, this first email comes from Chase. Chase writes, hey guys, I love your show. After listening to your series about Sagittarius A star, I thought of a way for me to conceptualize the astronomically large masses stated for black holes and I wanted to share it with you. I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, Chase says, the black hole at the center of our Milky Way galaxy, Sagittarius A star, weighs in at 2.6 million solar masses. That's big, too big really for us humans to fully comprehend. I agree. So I did some math. If you think of the sun's mass as one second, Earth's mass is three microseconds, and Sagittarius A stars would be 30 days and two hours. Oh, wow. That, that, that does really uh, hammer it home. But uh, as we talked about in the episode, as huge as uh, Sagittarius A star is from our perspective, the supermassive black holes at the center of other galaxies get much, much bigger. Uh, the, the quasar Ton 618 is one of the brightest objects in the known universe, so bright that the galaxy spinning around it is not visible from Earth because the quasar itself outshines it. The ultramassive black hole at the center of uh, Ton 618 is the largest currently known. It is estimated to weigh 66 billion solar masses, and then by the same reckoning as earlier where uh, the sun's mass was one second, Earth's mass is three microseconds, this would be 2,097 years, 175 days uh, if our sun is one second. Wow. That's really good. I I was hesitant when I started reading this email because I'm like, oh, I'm not sure if they're going to pull this off. They're actually going to take these big numbers and put them in a, you know, use some sort of metaphor or a, or a transference that would uh, that would really work. And this did. This yeah. totally did. Time within historical records, I think, is a pretty good way for people to try to conceptualize big number analogies. Woo! All right, here's another one concerning black holes. This one comes to us from Mike. 
Mike says, hi, guys. Just finished episode two on the supermassive black holes. Good stuff. In episode one, you briefly mentioned musical references to black holes, but you missed one. I believe I've heard you mention the Canadian band Rush on past episodes. (laughs) So I was surprised you missed mentioning their song dedicated to the first black hole to be experimentally discovered, Cygnus X1. Smiley face. Smiley face is not part of the, the, the black hole's <laughs> name, though that would be amusing if it were. No, it's just Cygnus X1. Looking forward to hearing more about black holes on a future episode. Now, Thanks, I, Mike. I, I can't wait to find out about the first astronomical bodies that have emoji incorporated into their official names. Yeah, that would be inter- interesting. It's like we discover um, like Orpheus B3 eggplant emoji, you know, and <laughs> – I mean, I guess it's only a matter of time. Uh, Earth will meet its demise with the impact of the great comet poop emoji. (laughs) But, uh, Mike, thank you for bringing up Rush. Yes. I don't don't know about you, Robert. I'm a pretty big fan of Rush, especially – I, I'm I'm not like one of those deep Rush maniacs who like knows all their catalog and all uh-huh. that, but Rush is one of my favorite things to come on classic rock radio. I always turn it up. Wait, what 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 is the Rush song I should know? Tom Sawyer. Uh, what's the other one I should know? There's, Let's not get night cheese. What, what's the other one though? There's uh, there's Limelight. There's Closer to the Heart. There's uh, oh man, what am I forgetting? Maybe I just don't know Rush that well. Eh. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know I've heard them before. I've heard Tom Sawyer before, but uh, I feel like there there must be the one Rush song that resonates with me, and I'm not sure uh, I'm recognizing it offhand. His mind is not for rent to any god or government. You don't know this? Oh, that one, I, I know that one. Oh, that's Tom Sawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's that's it's fine. Oh, wait, there's also uh, Spirit of the Radio. That's uh, the one. I don't know if I know that one. I think they, they reference that sometimes on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, Salesman. yes. <laughs> I think yeah, I, I don't think that's a that's a riff I ever got, but I laughed at it, you know. All right, so any Rush fans out there, I guess I need some Rush education. So write uh, in and educate Robert. Tell me what I need to listen to. Send me a playlist. I will I will give it a listen. Bring him closer to the heart. <laughs> Speaking of coming closer to the heart and following up black holes, uh, we have some listener mail concerning our episode on the One Ring. Woo! Right. So this first one is a sort of correction that I take from our listener, Emmett. Now, this is because we were discussing the melting point of several different materials that were potential candidates to make a ring of power. You want to make a ring of power, what should you make it out of? Uh, and, of course, mentioning the melting points is important because this, the the one ring in the Lord of the Rings can't be melted by normal heat. It has to be, I think, could maybe be melted by dragon breath. I don't remember, but it had to be thrown into the fires of Mount Doom. Anyway, I mentioned graphene, the material, uh, uh, along with its melting point as a possible candidate. And Emmett got in touch to say, hey, guys, in your One Ring episode, you discuss graphene as a potential material. If I'm not wrong, I'm pretty sure graphene will burn long before it melts, kind of like wood. I looked this up. Yes, Emmett is exactly correct. I think it was rather silly of me to try to consider the melting point of graphene. I think that would be sort of like considering the melting point of plywood. Um, um, from what I can tell, you know, it, it even burns at a relatively low temperature in the presence of oxygen. Uh, so, yeah, there is like – there's fire. There's combustion there. So very good point, Emmett. Thank you for clarifying that. All right. We're scratching graphene off the list, off uh, the official uh, one ring list. I guess so. All right. Here's another one ring email. And this one comes to us from Sandy. Sandy writes in and says, Dear Robert and Joe, first, I might have uh, squealed a tiny bit when I saw the title of the episode. <laughs> I love Tolkien and was so happy for this episode. And while I have a few corrections and notes, I mean, you hit nerddom, you know it's uh, it's going to happen. I want to say I love the episode even when people looked at me funny on the tram when I spoke out loud in response several times. Oops, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. First, regarding whether smog could have destroyed the One Ring, you actually answered it earlier in the show to quote Gandalf. It has been said that dragon fire could melt and consume the rings of power, but there is not in now any dragon left on earth in which the old fire is hot enough, nor was there ever any dragon, not even uh, Ancalagon the Black, who could have harmed the one ring, the ruling ring, for that was made by Sauron himself. She continues, Smog could have... Pe- 
potentially destroyed the rings of power, the three, the seven, or the nine, but he could not have destroyed the one ring. Even Ankelagon the Black could not have destroyed the one. Oh, and also uh, uh, um, Sandy throws in that it's very possible that Christopher Tolkien uh, could have covered this particular um, item as well in his various publications. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh they continue. Second, you almost failed to m- mention, but did circle back to it, the issue of the ring's size. But then you erred. No shame. <laughs> part of the will of the ring, or rather part of it mirroring the will of its master, is its ability to change shape. This allows it to change bearers when it chooses. This is also why one of the names that the ring is known by is Isildur's Bane. Uh, Seek for the sword that was broken. In Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. The poem uh, from uh, Faramir's recurring dream that Boromir then has once and which leads him to the council of Elrond in Rivendell. (laughs) This all makes sense to me because I don't know if you mentioned after we did the episode, I was like, okay, I got to go back and just read it. Oh, yeah, you you picked it up. So I've been reading it. I'm, I'm in the middle of two towers right now. Sandy continues, it's called that because the ring had come into Sildor's possession after he cut it off Sauron's finger uh, in the War of the Last Alliance. He ignored counsel to destroy it, which suggests, suggests perhaps he could have in the immediate defeat and weakening of Sauron, maybe, probably not, especially if it's the ring that led to the orc ambush that resulted in his death. When he and the company he was with were ambushed by orcs, after a fierce battle with the orcs winning, he put it on his finger to escape, to keep the ring from falling in the wrong hands, and did so until the ring slipped off his finger. Most think that it did so intentionally, enlarging itself enough to slip off his finger, and he escaped and, and he escaped and was then killed by the orcs. This intentional slipping off of the finger may also be how it moved from Gollum to Bilbo. If Gollum had worn the ring, it had slipped off, and he had forgotten that he had worn it, he would expect it to be in its hiding place. Thus, uh, when he returned to get it to ambush Bilbo after being bested in the contest of riddles, it was not there, as Bilbo had found it and slipped it into his pocket. Right. So the, they're saying that the uh, the ring may be sort of like uh, getting bigger and smaller when it wants to stick on somebody's finger or fall off somebody's finger in order to make it to a new host. Right. It's almost like a, a parasite of some kind. That, uh, that has like attaching and detaching kind of uh, properties or like the way some parodi- uh, parasites that are uh, intestinal parasites will intentionally get themselves pooped out at some point in order to pass on to the next point in their life cycle. The ring kind of works that way. But, you know, Sandy's also touching on something which I could think could be a potential benefit of the ring that we uh, – a power of the ring. Mm. So if you're like me and you have a, a ring that is uh, kind of loose fitting, mm-hmm. you'll find that on cold days it is more likely to, to slide off. Mm-hmm. And on hot days, it is more uh, – it can be more difficult to remove. Uh, though it also has to do with things like have you been walking around with your hands at your sides? Mm-hmm. Have you been drinking beer? <laughs> yeah, there are all these factors that can affect the fit of a ring. Uh-huh. But if you have the one ring, I'm guessing as long as it wants you, you're going to have a perfect fit at all times. And I think that's amazing. Excellent craftsmanship, Sauron. Yeah, one of a kind. All right, Sandy continues, almost done here. An interesting part of the ring that you did not mention was those that seem immune to its pull or able to resist it. We see both Galadriel and Gandalf refuse it, but they both also bear one of the three. And that is not to say that they were not tempted. However, we have two mortals, neither Elf nor Maya, uh, and not protected by the three. The nine, of course, bear no such protection for their wares as the bears of the nine or the ringwraiths, uh, Faramir and Sam. Sam even bears the ring with seemingly no temptation to do more than to carry the burden for Frodo. Uh, and one must wonder, how would things have been different if, if the, the brother not tempted by the ring had gone to Rivendell. Of course, Bombadil could literally play with the ring and see through its invisibility, but Bombadil is probably not exactly mortal. And yeah, I think Bombadil, by by most interpretations, is far from mortal. He's some kind of primal being. Yeah, he's some sort of, yeah, a primal deity that is no real, no longer really connected to the, uh, the affairs of, uh, I mean, he's connected to nature, I suppose, but not to the affairs of all these mortals and immortals battling for control of things. Dude, we 
we're really tunneled deep into Nerd Mountain here. (laughs) But did we tunnel too deep? I don't know. We'll find out. Anyway, Sandy finishes up. Anyway, uh, I doubt this is the only way too long email about the wonderful Despite Its Errors episode. Thank you very much for doing it. Peace, Sandy. Wait, I'm still not sure what exactly were the errors. I lost track in there. I think maybe we did not uh, – we didn't get the thing about the dragon's breath. Uh, no, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't think these were necessarily uh, errors uh, per well, se. But they they were, might be. I just literally aspects, lost track of them here. I think that more Sandy was bringing up aspects of the, the mythology and extended mythology that uh, we didn't really uh, dwell on in the episode. Sandy, I I accept your wisdom. You are the master. You are clearly the lore master. You're the one who should have gone to Rivendell. Uh, We're we're the the foolhardy Boromirs who barged ahead without having the wisdom and restraint. No, but but no, this is what I love about this topic is that there's so much room for uh, ultimately for interpretation when you start trying to apply uh, science to the scenario or really – you know, reach for the, you know, the the definitive answer on questions regarding, uh, you know, the nature of the One Ring. But okay, we've made it over the bridge of Khazad-dûm. We're now out of the uh, the nerd mines of Moria and into the daylight on the other side. And yet we have more listener mail related to the One Ring, <laughs> and this one comes to us from Tim. Oh, wait, okay, yeah. Uh, so this one refers to another uh, similar thing. So Tim writes... Uh, hey, stuff to blow your mind. I listened to your One Ring episode. First, I want to say, bold move. I bet you got an insane amount of listener mail for that one. Uh, not as much mail as we got about school dreams, but we got some. Right. Though I should also say uh, we have an older email address that I don't think works anymore. Uh-huh. So if you're still using the How Stuff Works address to reach out for us, that's probably not going anywhere. I I don't know. We might still be getting those Maybe. or might not. I don't, I don't know what's arriving. Yeah. We, just as we're not entirely sure about how the One Ring functions, <laughs> we're also not entirely sure how company email works. Uh, Tim writes, at one point y'all mentioned a sci-fi version of Lord of the Rings. I thought you'd be interested in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Mm. Is it particularly good sci-fi? No. Is it a page-turner on par with Lord of the Rings? No siree. But does it specifically mention locations from Lord of the Rings, and was it made partially on a bet with Tolkien about trying to write sci-fi? Yes. Allegedly, both Tolkien and Lewis wanted to write science fiction because their contemporaries were writing uh, atheistic science fiction. Both authors produced something. Uh, Lewis wrote the Space Space Trilogy and included themes from Tolkien. Tolkien wrote a strange, unfinished story that is marginally about Elrond time traveling. You can read this oddity in one of the History of Middle-Earth books, uh, I forget which. I don't suggest any of these works as good reads, but they're really neat when viewed in the context of both Tolkien and Lewis, and especially the theoretical combined Tolkien-slash-Lewis legendarium. Anyways, great content. I couldn't ask for a better podcast to play in the background while I work. Thank you. Sincerely, Tim. Yeah, I I read the Space Trilogy years and years back, like maybe it was even high school when I read. Yeah, it was, I think it was maybe high school when I read it initially. Uh, and then I reread, I think, Paralandra, uh, the second one in college. Uh, Paralandra was, was my favorite of the three by, by far. And I think it, if I were to reread one today, it would definitely be Paralandra, which uh, if you're not familiar with it, it, it recreates, I believe it's on, it's on Venus. Um, yes, because the first one is oh, out of the silent yeah. planet which is Mars, and uh, Paralandra is Venus. And what's created is kind of a, an, an Eden world. It's a, it's a water planet. It's an Eden. And we have our character, Ransom, a human, show up. And he's, uh, and he's he also arriving on the planet is this other character that is a human, but a human that is possessed by, uh, by a demon. Mm-hmm. I believe the, it is, you know, it's basically Satan. Mm-hmm. So you have this whole, like, uh, you know, uh, sort of treatment of, of sin and evil in the world and, uh, you know, retelling of, uh, you know, the fall of Eden on in this, this strange, you know, mythic kind of uh, sci-fi setting. But it is, like you said, only marginally sci-fi. It's, 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 it ain't hard sci-fi at all. It's, uh, you know, maybe soft sci-fi if we're going to get into the, you know, the exact nougaty, um, you know, uh, aspect of it here. But uh, I remember digging it back in the day. I don't, I don't know how I'd feel about it today, but that's one reason to reread it. Uh, yeah, I guess that goes to the, the question we dealt with, I think maybe in the last listener mail episode about what is science fiction? Is it about uh, human humanity's challenges presented by new technology or is it just like – 
any stories that take place in the future or stories that take place with space travel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that episode, I mean that, I don't think that installment was at all concerned with technology. Mm -hmm. I think it was inspired by sort of planet sci-fi of the, you know, of, of the olden days. And then was about, you know, Lewis exploring topics that yeah. Lewis was interested in. Sword and planet stuff. Yeah, yeah, sword and planet, exactly. Now, the third one was is uh, is weird. Uh, what, that hideous strength? I, I, haven't, I haven't read any of it. I remember it having some, there was some like gender stuff in there that I probably would not really appreciate today. But I also remember there being some like real horror-based stuff. Like the, as far as like horror in a C.S. Lewis book goes, there are some moments in, in that hideous strength that that, that feel kind of creepy mm. things with uh, you know uh, disembodied heads being made to speak and so oh. forth uh well, I, it's been a long time but i remember when i read the the darnia books i remember there was a passage in voyage of the dawn treader that i found really horrifying when oh, i was yeah? a kid at least it was like when they go through this fog of fear or something hmm. uh, i don't know I, maybe i'll go back revisit it and it would seem rather tame today <laughs> all right we need to take a break but we'll be right back with more all right, we're back. And this time we truly leave uh, the, the worlds of Tolkien and Lewis behind and we move on into more firmly scientific territory. Okay, this is just a short message uh, uh, from uh, Rasmus about our electric microbland episode. Uh, hello, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Just listen to the episode Electric Microbland, uh, and I wanted to let you know how great it was. It was one of my favorite episodes ever. I think it brought up some very interesting concepts about electron transportation and respiration that I'd never heard of before, and I hope you will do more episodes on this topic. Best regards, Rasmus. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the next thing on, on this subject area would be, but I'm, I'm game for more if you are, Robert. I guess we uh, got Yeah, we just have to see what kind of s studies and papers come out in the months ahead. Yeah. All right, we have another listener mail. This one concerns euphemisms, and this one, uh, this was a vault episode, I believe. Yes, it was. Uh, so Thomas writes, the euphemism episode brought to mind a homework assignment I once had in primary school. We had to write a number of euphemisms, so being the smart aleck uh, that I was, I thought I'd be hilarious uh, to put making love is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. I think I was nine. I don't remember the reaction I got from my teacher. <laughs> Joe mentioned uh, that he loves uh, idioms from around the world. So down here in New Zealand and maybe Australia too, we say, we're not here to f*** spiders, which basically <laughs> translates as we're not here to waste time. I love this expression. That is so good. I live in Canada now and once said this and got a resounding look of confusion. Love both your shows and think it would could be interesting to hear invention shows on plastic and knives. Recently been watching uh, Bob Kramer knife-making videos. Keep up the good work. Knife-making videos can be very hypnotic. Now, I don't want to speak too much about invention on uh, a listener mail for Stuff to Blow Your Mind because we do our own uh, invention listener mails as well. But knives could be interesting, not so much in terms of, of pinpointing like where knives were invented and that sort of thing, but maybe looking right. at the sort of innovations that have taken place over time, like how knives have changed yeah. uh, and, and what different purposes we use knives for. Yeah, that would be a huge, very complex story, probably a multi-parter, right? Uh, because what would you have to start with the hand axe going back to our Dietrich Stout interview? Uh, yeah, I mean you probably have to start with pre-knife – Stone yeah, tools the and the like, yeah. yeah. But then you can get into some really fun stuff like uh, the switchblade. Oh, like, wow. off, off the top of my head, I have no idea exactly how the switchblade comes into being, but it is such an iconic knife. It's the the bad guy knife, you know. <laughs> Robert, we're not here to <laughs> spiders. <laughs> uh, to say nothing of the the Swiss Army knife. Uh, yeah, now, now I'm even more convinced. I'm I'm very interested in chasing these various weird knives through history. <laughs> All right. Uh, this next email about euphemisms was very short, but I wanted to read it because I thought it was funny. Uh, this, this is just part of an email we got from our listener, Anna. Anna says she just uh, listened to our Vault episode about euphemisms. 
and writes, a bad example of a euphemism is when I worked full-time for a software company. The company was not doing very well, so they had to decrease everyone to four days a week. They described this as, quote, increasing your work-life balance. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is some That is some, some of the, the worst corporate BS uh, speech speak that I've, uh, I've, I've encountered. Uh. Uh, really good. All right, this one, uh, next one comes to us from Roger. Roger says, hey, guys, been a fan of Stuff to Blow Your Mind for a long time and really enjoy your new show, Invention, as well. Having to drive one hour to get to work each day gives me plenty of time to listen to your podcast uh, to make the drive more enjoyable, and I try to catch every episode. Being a Norwegian myself, it was interesting to hear uh, that the Norwegian phrase, Ugler i Mosen, Owls in the Moss, had reached you. Uh, as you found the phrase somewhat amusing, I thought I'd shed some more light on it, especially since the phrase falls in line with how languages change, as you mentioned regarding the euphemism treadmill example in your euphemisms episode. The phrase, as you mentioned, means something is afoot or something is not how it should be. Another way of putting it is to be wary or be careful. The term actually originates uh, from Denmark. However, in Danish, the term was der er uler emusen. Uh, now, this term has a different meaning in Danish and actually means there are wolves in the swamp or marsh. That makes a lot more sense for something being afoot. <laughs> the difference here, of course, is that the Danes used uler, wolves, rather than ugler, owls. And in Danish, the word mosen means swamps or marshes, wetlands, while the same word mosen in Norwegian means moss. <laughs> the Danish term was primarily used with regards to the cattle trade to imply a shady trade-up until the end of the 1800s. And after the wolves were eradicated from Denmark, the term gradually changed from uler, wolves to oogler owls and has since kept that meaning. Another fun thing to remark about this is also that the term has yet again changed a little. When something is shady or there is something afoot and we have a single word in Norwegian which encapsulates the whole meaning and that is muffins. Muffins. So it's like instead of saying something shady is going on, you can just say muffins. Yeah, you would say... Uh, her um, that no muffins. That would mean uh, uh, they say there is something shady going on here. These days, you will sometimes hear people say here that muffins I mosen, meaning there is something shady in the moss. <laughs> and this has yet again, sometimes deliberately to be funny, and other times simply as a misquote, been changed to here that muffins I mosen, which means there are muffins in the moss. <laughs> You could argue that muffins in the moss also implies that something is not right <laughs> or that there is something afoot. So while the phrase has been changed around, it still retains its original meaning, at least to some extent. Though it has moved quite a bit from its original and foreboding message, there are wolves in the marshes, to the more benign, there are muffins in the moss. I uh, thought this might be a fun little exploration into how the language how language changes over time using a foreign phrase you brought up in your podcast. Also, big thanks to both of your podcasts, which keep me entertained, always uh, allows me to pick up and learn new things as well uh, as how you frequently come at various topics from unexpected angles and often uh, th makes me go, hmm, I never thought of it that way while on my way to or from work. Keep up the great work and looking forward to the next episodes of both Invention and Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Well, thank you so much, Roger. That was fantastically interesting and funny. Uh, we we had heard from several other listeners about the owls in the moss expression. Uh, you're not the only one to get in touch about that. But this is the only th place I think I heard about muffins. Yeah, I really like this muffins in the moss talk. I, I want to start incorporating that into my, uh, you know, uh, into my daily discourse. Right. But, Robert, we're not here to f*** muffins in the moss. <laughs> You're really getting a lot out of uh, out of Carney's <laughs> new um, uh, profanity bleeping uh, software, Joe. You're really putting it to the test we, here. We keep it clean around here. All right. Finally, I think we're going to read something about the uh, Voynich Manuscript episodes we did. So this comes from Matt. Matt says, hey, guys, longtime listener, first time correspondent. Absolutely love the show, along with invention, stuff you should know and stuff they don't want you to know. I've had a high-res PDF of the Voynich Manuscript for a while, and I've used it in my own artwork as well as in D&D &D campaigns as inspiration. <laughs> Man, we are just hearing from so many D&D &D people. Yeah, I'm, I love it. The more Dungeon Masters and Game Masters we have listening to the show, the better. 
Uh, Matt goes on, the drawings are somewhat sloppy but very endearing. The text is immaculate and fascinating, at least aesthetically. My theory is simple. It's an art book, not intended to deceive or prank anyone, just a cool project of someone similar to me, to be honest. A few things I notice is that it looks like the drawings were done first and the text added after. Pretty obvious. I also think it was written from right to left and not left to right. Could be the creator or creators uh, was left-handed. I am left-handed and I find writing that way is quite easy, especially if I'm 100% making it up as I go. It also drastically reduces smudging. I took bookmaking and book restoring classes in art school and I made a few occult tomes for fun or as class projects. Never sold them, still have them some 20 uh, plus years later. One is even on antique paper I found, which brings me to another theory I read. Not sure if you covered it. Maybe the text, art, and paper itself are all of different ages or even by different people. Anyway, keep up the fascinating work. And I uh, I have a long back catalog of you guys to eventually listen to, which I love. It would be sad if there were only 50 or so podcasts so far. <laughs> Thank you for reading, Matt. And then Matt attached a page for us to look at from one of his uh, Voynich-esque art books. It looks like a combination of some strange architectural plans with some kind of like tool album cover body art. Yeah, kind of, kind of a, a Leonardo da Vinci uh, uh, aspect to it as well. Yeah, I like this. You know, uh, speaking of, I would love to come back and do something on Leonardo da Vinci proper because I was listening to uh, Ideas uh, on uh, CBC radio. Mm-hmm. Paul uh, Kennedy, yeah. Well, Paul has, has oh, moved on well, now. Yeah. I mean, he's retired uh, and, uh, and there's a new host, but it's still a great show. And they, they did one recently on Leonardo da Vinci's use of monsters Ooh. and, uh, and his, his, his like lifelong uh, obsession with monsters. And it was, it was quite fascinating, obviously, because it touches on uh, several different things that, that I really enjoy. So if, I would recommend anyone out there, if you want to check out Ideas, you've hear, heard me talk about it for, for years. Uh, if you're interested in monsters and or Leonardo da Vinci, uh, go find that episode. I am tremendously intrigued. There's spikes shooting out of my brain about this. Woo! All right. I have another Voynich manuscript, a uh, bit of listener mail to read here. This one comes to us from David. David writes, I was just finishing your episodes on the Voynich Manuscript, and I wanted to see if what I started to suspect had already been offered as a theory. One of you mentioned that sigils and proto-cryptograms you would create as a child. I had already begun to suspect, almost as quickly as I started listening to the episodes, the possibility that it is the work of a child. Hmm. Uh, This could explain a few things, the nonsensical language, but close enoughness of the language, the unrecognizable drawings, even the drawings of naked women, a prime curiosity for uh, male children. If you think about the nature of manuscripts of the time, access to the material was reserved for either the clergy or the very wealthy. The idea of a child more or less rules out the clergy, but it wouldn't be an extreme stretch of the imagination that a wealthy lord or baron could allocate resources for the pet project of their preferred son. I say son because it's the most logical choice for the time and place, and privileged people believing that their children are somehow uh, you know, preternaturally intelligent is nothing new and also never going to go out of style. The product of the kinds of pressure that children like these experience do often exhibit a sophistication beyond their years, which could explain the nature of the drawing and the writing. This is just an idea, and it wouldn't surprise me if somebody else had already come up with it. I'm not claiming to have cracked it. I've never even looked at it. Okay. Uh, because it, if it is the work of a child's mind, then there's, there's nothing to crack. It's just adults trying to decipher meanings from the musings of a child, which would be equally frustrating and hilarious to think about all the wasted time and conspiracy. And at the end of the day, the answers to many riddles are hiding in plain sight. It's only when we try to read into them uh, and overanalyze uh, them that they become misconstrued. Thanks for your time, both for reading and the work you put into your shows. Cheers, David. Now, this is really interesting. I like—I really like this this idea of looking at it as potentially as the, the work of a child. You know, in part because that could potentially—it seems like it could maybe be uh, one of the possibilities. But more importantly, I like the idea of then learned adults coming to it and over analyzing it and finding mm-hmm. it so intriguing. Adults who you know no longer have the that pure childhood curiosity, that 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 pure plasticity of a young child, uh, and but in in doing so. 
it's, it's kind of like, you know, the whole idea of children say the darndest things or whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. children will say weirdly crazy and often illogical things that just fill us with laughter and, and sometimes awe, you know, sometimes they cut to like a truth of the universe mm-hmm. uh, that, that we would never, you know, we would never quite say it that way, but a child has. We would never draw it that way, but a child did. So, uh, I, you know, I, I like this idea. As the, the father of, of a child who loves to illustrate strange books about dinosaurs, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'll look at them and I'll be like, that is, that is crazy. I love it. And, uh, yeah, I can imagine something like that taking place with the Vonage manuscript, whether or not it's actually a valid theory or not. Totally. One last thing I will say about uh, the Voynich Manuscript is that several listeners got in touch to ask us about a particular theory explaining it that uh, has has been in a couple of videos online. I believe it's with some scholars saying they believe it's in some archaic form of Turkish or or has something to do with like a a Turkish culture that, uh, that created the manuscript. I... Basically, like I've looked at it, I, I looked at the videos. I, I have no way of evaluating it because I don't have you know expertise in cryptography or Turkish or medieval manuscripts or and I guess not medieval, medieval or Renaissance manuscripts. So I I don't know, but I also haven't found anything by experts evaluating this theory. So that that already makes me a little. Uh, cautious about saying, yes, they cracked it, as, you know, we tended to be with all kinds of things. But it's possible. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear what the uh, the scholars and relevant experts say. Well, the folks at Yale would be the the ones to ask. Uh, uh, they would the, be. At the, how do you, the Beinecke Library or however you say Benecki, it. Benecki, I think. Benecki. Yeah. Beinecke. Be- what, we, I think we said it wrong at one least of, once I, in the One episode. of us <laughs> is right or we're both wrong. Uh, <laughs> but I feel like we have pretty good odds there. Uh-huh. Ooh, well, I don't know about you, Joe, but I feel like I'm uh, I'm out of steam uh, for th- this week's listener mail. Yes, I would say there are owls in the moss because they've <laughs> lost uh, the will to fly and fully collapsed into the underbrush. All right, so yeah, we're going to go ahead and, and close the mailbox for now. Uh, again, we we read everything. We don't get to read everything on the show, uh, and we don't get to write back. But we do continue continue to enjoy hearing from everyone. Uh, you know, you end up adding so much additional insight into the topics we discuss. And we just love to know as well, you know, what what is really resonating with you, uh, what kind of topics that you dig, and what kind of topics you want us to do in the future. In the meantime, if you want to listen to more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them at stufftoblowyourmind.com, and you'll, you'll find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Uh, the best thing, best thing you can do to support the show is to tell other people about it and to rate and review wherever you have the power to do so. Uh, the same goes for Invention, our show that goes through human techno history, one invention at a time. Uh, inventionpod.com is the website, but you'll find it all over the place. And if you want a little slice of uh, sci-fi fiction horror this uh, holiday season as you're, you're driving around uh, or flying around or just staying put, uh, check out the Second Oil Age. Uh, that's the show that I worked on. And as of this publication, I think most of the episodes are up. Maybe it has like two more. It's going to – all the episodes will be up by the end of November and then you can binge it. If you haven't listened to the Second Oil Age yet, really do check it out. I think you will love it. If you're a fan of this show, it should be right up your alley. All right. Well, thanks to Carney for helping us out once more. Uh, of course, thanks as always to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to just send some general listener mail that could be featured on a future episode like this one, you can, as always, email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 